electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Andrew Osorkin, and you're listening to Squawk Pod. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, subtweeting. This Twitter stuff is kind of interesting. It's fascinating. Twitter CEO banning political ads just before Facebook CEO jumped on his company's quarterly earnings call. And it was totally trolling. The push to end vaping. 28% of high schoolers are vaping and 5% of middle schoolers are vaping. These statistics are alarming and the trend is not good. Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy urging the White House to pull flavored e-cigs from the market. And Silicon Valley veteran Jeff Yang. We're definitely under fire. Why move fast and break things may be over. We've got those stories and a lot more. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Thursday, October 31st, 2019. Happy Thanksgiving. Not happy Thanksgiving. Happy Halloween. <laughs> Thanksgiving's coming. Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is coming. not uh, far off. is here. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on the podcast today, news breaking early this morning from a Bloomberg report that says Chinese officials have been casting doubt about the possibility of a long-term trade deal with the U.S. and the Trump administration. That report says that the officials are concerned about President Trump's impulsive nature and the risk that he may back out of even a limited deal. In the report as well, uh, it said that they don't plan on budging on some of the big issues, some of the right. most contentious issues. I, I hearken back to fear the whole time. Right. I hearken back to Rick Scott when he comes in and just says nothing. The, gov- the senator, uh, Rick Scott, just says nothing. They're right. not going to do anything. It's not gonna... But it also, is it a coincidence that the S&P is at a new high and, and again, Sometimes I think over here we think we've got some house money again. The markets are fine. Um, They've hit new highs. Let's put the pressure back on. Did we exert any pressure? Uh, Was was this totally unilateral? Chile canceled the the APEC meeting where we were not going to be able to to potentially sign. So that does complicate it a little. It sounds like both sides still would like to sign something. And um, and both sides jawbone. They do. They both say, and and over in China at this point now, it's, oh, you know, and there's an election coming here. And and the Chinese know that. And I don't know whether they'd be better served with somebody else or whether the impulsive nature of President Trump is really something that they don't they don't want to deal with. Well, Suddenly, though, they, they have a point. He does. Tend he to he say. does. But he put us in this position in the first place. Right. Suddenly we are confronting China. And I think there's probably a majority of Americans that, that want to do this now. There's and that was not the way it was a year ago. On both the right and the left. This is not going back in the, in the toothpaste. The genie's not going back in the toothpaste tube. But I think this goes back to the sort of larger issue of, A, do they do anything big at all? And if the idea is Are now they do, capable of doing anything well, big at all? Well, the question is, are they capable of doing anything big ever? IP but if they're going to do something big, 
do you do it now or do you wait? And that's always you, been the I issue. don't think they'll ever do it. They uh, with the IP. That's their way of, that's, that's what put them where they are. That's what, you know, jettisoned them to the top of the wor- Look, global economy. Look, the argument economy. on why they might eventually come along on IP theft is that now that they have their own companies that are creating a lot of intellectual property, they may right. be in a slightly different position where they would like to protect some really of it at some point, but that will it. also admit that they've been stealing it for years, and that's a, a heavy right. lift for them. So uh, you tell me, though, you think this house money idea that you have is going oh, to sort of I, I definitely think be used now? When, he gets, when the president gets back to where he can say we're at all-time highs, I think he turns the screws on, on the Chinese. I, I, I think he may tone it down a little bit. I think from it's what he's done in the past. Oh, has he got anything else going on? Well, yeah, yeah he's got other stuff going on. He's got an election coming up, and right. he wants the economy to be strong heading into the next year. So even though he may feel like he has some house money, my guess is he's not going to be quite as strident as he has in the past um, on other situations. Also new this morning, uh, Fiat, Chrysler, and Peugeot announcing their intention to merge. The automaker saying the deal would involve a 50-50 stock swap. Fiat Chrysler's chairman, John Elkan, would become chair of the new company, while Peugeot's chief executive, Carlos Tavares, will become the CEO with an initial five-year term. If this deal clears all the hurdles, it would create what would be the world's fourth largest automaker by sales, with a combined worth of more than $48 billion. This is the second attempt uh, by Fiat to uh, form a merger of some sort. This one, by the way, uh, looks like it's going to be uh, getting the support of the French government, which was uh, what had held up uh, the transaction with Renault that John Elkan had uh, tried to pursue earlier this year. Right, so, big deal in that space. The question is whether it's enough for Fiat and Peugeot. It definitely helps them. It's better than no deal um, in terms of being able to cut costs and things like that, but it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily help in the same way that the Renault deal would have done in terms of getting yourself into China, EVs and electric vehicles and and electric cars and how that all is going to work. But uh, this may be a multi-step process. You mean before you fold somebody else in? I wonder wonder whether this is, you you do this, you spend a year or two setting this up, and then, you know, and the sad part is the French government should have probably pursued the the Renault deal because it would have strategically gotten a lot of these things done a lot quicker. Right. Hmm. But that's why I said it's a multi-step world. I saw Peugeot, uh, I think it was 2016 uh, on the road. Yeah. I think. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of the year. Twitter announcing it will ban political advertising ahead of the 2020 presidential campaign in a series of tweets. CEO Jack Dorsey saying political message reach should be earned, not bought. The new rule applies to both candidate ads and issue ads as well. And the final policy will be released on November 15th and will take effect on November 22nd. The policy is a stark difference from the other tech companies, most, uh, mostly, of course, Facebook. Less than two hours after Twitter announced that policy, Mark Zuckerberg speaking on the Facebook conference call about the decision to continue running political ads. Here's what he had to say. Although I've considered whether we should not carry these ads in the past, and I'll continue to do so. On balance, so far, I've thought that we should continue. We estimate that these ads from politicians will be less than 0.5% of our revenue next year. So that's not why we're doing this. To put this in perspective, the FTC fine that these same critics said wouldn't be enough to change our incentives was more than 10x bigger than this. So the reality is, is that we believe deeply uh, that political speech is important, and that's what's driving us. 
And the Trump campaign responded to Twitter's ad ban, saying Twitter just walked away from hundreds of millions of dollars of potential revenue, a very dumb decision for their stockholders. So this is now getting political, of course. Uh, it may be worth hundreds of millions of dollars in the future, but right now for Twitter, uh, it's a measly, it. I think, $3 million. I think 2016, so that's all they had. It's not, it's, it's not moving the needle for them. Yeah. Having said that, I have to say there's an element of, you know, I think an element of me that thinks that ludicrous. It's ridiculous. You think it's ludicrous. I think it's ridiculous to say that they have to earn it and not advertise. Do you know what a political campaign would be if you didn't have money to spend on ads? You would never know any of the lesser candidates. Do you know when media companies report earnings in either, in a, in either a, a national election or a, a two-year election? Do you know that in the earnings, it says, boosted by political Correct. spending? Yes. You want to live in a world where, how are you going to organically find out about the, the newest candidate, no, 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 Andrew? No. I, think, I think the issue is, you, I think what Jack Dorsey's made a decision about is, either you accept no advertising or you have to figure out a way to police the advertising. And right now, it is too hot an issue about how to police the advertising. So he's chosen... But I understand. Not but, to but, but the he statement he made, he, he put this you out need to earn it, not buy it. Earnings. Well, that's, well, that's, that's absurd. It, by the way, this does not prevent President Trump... No, I know, I'm not saying... He, but, but he's, in a, he well, he's, in, a unique, he's in a unique position. He's in a very unique position. You know, Amy Klobuchar doesn't have, you know, 24 million followers, what, 60 million followers. Correct. Look, we know right now we hear that that, uh, Vice President Biden, his fundraising is down. That's going to be an issue when you got other people with 25 million in the back. And and how do they use it? They use it for political ads. That's the way things work. If you want to, you know, I've heard about Citizens United and money and politics and all this, all this high, all these high flung ideas. That's not the real world. That's not how it works. And and, and, if you got 17 people running for president, the bottom six, 15 aren't going to get anywhere without political advertising i completely okay then you then then the issue to me is about well, first of all i would actually you know like to take money out of, out of politics i know you would and i i know oh i know slightly different i, I actually know. allow you to advertise and cap the amount that everybody can spend. okay meaning uh. everybody can spend the same amount of money to advertise what would the cap be Come up with your number, but the point is that can we pass a law so we regulate how much well, it is and but, put a cap on it? That's a good idea. Piece of this, let, let the house the other and, piece of this, and, and I would argue one of the reasons that that Mark Zuckerberg has pursued this sort of open policy on advertising is that he's anxious that if he were to actually police the advertising, that he would be then regulated effectively by policymakers who'd be upset about well, you've already how seen he's the approaching Trump campaign's this. Approach That's to this. the They're issue. They're upset with what happens with this because they have some money to spend on this. But I have to say, this whole thing is a lot of political theater. I mean, you said from the top, right. this is, they're able to do this because it's not a significant portion <laughs> of their advertising not, But revenue. I think there's a much larger issue dollars. here. Much larger issue, but he intentionally did this trolling. Oh, he did it, by the way, he did it at minutes 4 p.m. At minutes the time before, that as, as Facebook minutes before is Facebook's announcing their earnings. I mean, this was no. an entirely set up to troll, and there are these battles that are taking place in Silicon Valley right now when you have Tim Cook who's spouting off about privacy and saying we stand by privacy. Trolling is. Uh I don't know if it's trolling per se. It's totally trolling. Talk to me like the day before the election about whether I want to ban political ads. <laughs> you will have seen enough by After, then. Gotta draw Are you, you thinking clockwork orange? Yeah. Eyes wide open. Like the last two months of the yeah, local like, stuff ah, going out in New Jersey. And it's like. I'm already getting it for election day next week. On Tuesday. I know, but it's kind of an You're already getting bombarded. stuff that comes into it. To some degree. Unlike what Barry said yesterday. You know. Barry made this reference that Barry, Barry Diller made this reference that somehow none of these adverti- these ads are policed, and that's that's not exactly right. Most of these ads actually are policed by broadcasters, 
by the cable networks. And there have been ads that President Trump has tried to put on the air that have been have been blocked. Only at CNN. There have been ad, there have been other ads that have been blocked. And I imagine that if there was a responsible policing party in, in between here, you would have that. But the but we don't. So, I mean, so, you so wait, but here's, the, here's the answer. Like, the broadcasters are actually bound by federal law. Mark Zuckerberg would like to see social media bound by social law. He wants somebody else to set the rules, not him. And I mean, that becomes right. a question. OK, but I, I think that Joe doesn't want regulation either. I don't know. Do you want ads regulated for the truth? Um, I don't. I, I, no, but, I, I but caveat, I'm with Barry. On, I mean, I, I'm a big boy. I'll figure out whether it's true or not. You know what I mean? And a lot of things I like to believe anyway, if, even if they aren't true. But that's, that's the, the problem, <laughs> Joe. I'm kidding. I know. I'm kidding. And, and for Dorsey, it's worth this much to him, and it's worth this much to Zuckerberg. So he... Although Zuckerberg said that it's not worth that much to him either. It's 0.05. But I think it's worth actually a lot more to Zuckerberg in a different way. It's not about the financials in the, in the advertising itself. It's in what's going to happen to his company if it's regulated in a more meaningful way. And I do believe that part of his position is about placating a certain part of the political class that has otherwise been against him. And, and I will add to it that Dorsey doing this steps up the political pressure on, right. on Zuckerberg with trying to come up with some solution or face right. being regulated. I'll make also just one quick observation. Facebook, core Facebook, mm-hmm. is actually, Joe, a very, very, what I call it, con- should be called conservative Facebook. You look at the top ten things that are shared on Facebook on any given day. That would be hard and, for me to do. And it's Breitbart, and it's Ben Shapiro, and it's the Daily I mean, that's, that's what it is. And so if you really understand who he's trying to play kid, it's not the people in Silicon Valley. It's a very different group. That's what's happening here. I don't like any ads on Twitter, and I feel violated. It's like, I don't follow this person. Who is this? I don't follow them. And then it says an ad, and I feel violated. But Can you just you- go to our ad? Sure. We've got an ad. We, got, we had to go to advertising. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, the congressman who wants to remove flavored e-cigarettes from store shelves. I think the costs of allowing more youth to vape far exceed the benefits of certain preferences that adults have. Our kids are not for sale. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Stand Andrew by in five seconds. Four, Welcome back three, to Squawk Pod. Two, one, up and Andrew. Q, Mike. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Take a look at U.S. equity futures at this hour. Next, e-cigarettes. In September, the Trump administration announced plans to pull flavored nicotine pods off store shelves. It's the flavors like fruit, mint, and menthol that vaping opponents say appeal to children. And six weeks later, no further details have come from the White House about the ban, its timing, or what products will be affected. Raja Krishnamurti, a Democratic congressman from Illinois, is overseeing an investigation into e-cig maker Juul Labs. About 80 percent of Juul's U.S. sales come from flavored e-cigarettes. As you'll hear, he is passionate about stemming a tobacco epidemic among kids. 28 percent of high schoolers are vaping and 5 percent of middle schoolers are vaping. And has written a letter to the White House urging the flavored vape ban be finalized and implemented by next week. 
Joining us right now is Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. He wrote the letter to the administration and is leading the charge among Congress. And, uh, Congressman, thank you for being here today. Good morning. So what, what have you heard back from the administration, from the White House, since sending that letter? Uh, we haven't heard back anything yet. Um, and the reason why we wrote the letter is that uh, about six weeks ago, the White House and President Trump, uh, citing our investigation, proposed a ban on all flavored e-cigarettes, which are what really primarily attract youth to vaping. Um, unfortunately, um, despite saying that we'd see a regulation within a couple weeks of that announcement, which was six weeks ago, we haven't seen anything. And so we wrote this letter yesterday asking the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs at the White House to basically come up with this rule within the next 10 days, as they have in the past with other regulations, because it's so important that we put this in effect ASAP to prevent more kids from vaping. What happened? Why, why the delay? What, what do you think happened behind the scenes? We don't know. Honestly, we don't know. And um, what I fear is that members of the industry are basically lobbying against putting out the rule or putting in exclusions within the rule for certain flavors, namely mint and menthol. Mint is the most popular flavor right now for e-cigarettes, and it's also the most popular flavor for youth who, who vape. <laughs> And there's a reason why mint is in our children's toothpaste, because it's very appealing to kids. And so we want to make sure there are no exclusions, and we put this rule out ASAP. Mint is the most popular flavor among children who are doing this, too? Yes, ma'am. Um, 90% of youth who take up vaping take up flavored e-cigarettes, and 60% of youth are actually using mint e-cigarettes. And so this is something that... Um, you know, as a parent of three children, um, I'm very, very personally concerned about, um, as I'm sure many of your viewers are. The argument for keeping mint or, or menthol flavors in has been that adults who are trying to quit smoking, that that's the most popular flavor for them as well. How do you, how do you balance those two arguments? Sure. I think the costs of allowing more youth to vape far exceed the benefits of certain preferences that adults have. I'll just give you a couple statistics. Maybe your viewers are already familiar with it. 28% of high schoolers are vaping and 5% of middle schoolers are vaping. And uh, these, are, these statistics are um, alarming and the trend is not good. It's, it's growing by the day. And so I, I just think we have to uh, put a stop to this. You know, our kids are not for sale. Have you looked into these recent reports that suggest that, that Juul was actually knowingly selling tainted or outdated materials? And there's a whistleblower who used to work at the company who has charged that. Um, I'm not uh, aware of the specific allegations. We haven't investigated them yet. Um, however, um, it's very disturbing to know that a company would, in the first place, sell such products. And then secondly... Um, continue to do the things that we uncovered in our investigation, such as going into schools, paying high school districts and other uh, schools to basically go in and, and basically present their products as safer than they are. That's what we revealed in our investigation. We're asking for further documents from Jewel about this and other issues, and um, I'm sure that uh, we're going to be following up with them very soon as well. If the administration comes back with a rule that allows mint or menthol to continue, what will your response be? Well, I think that uh, obviously we're going to lobby heavily for that uh, not to happen. But if it does happen, I think you're going to see legislation, which basically calls for 
uh, ending those exemptions to the flavor ban and making them permanent. Congressman, it's good to see you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Next, the social media dilemma. What makes our platforms wonderful may also make them dangerous. One of the first investors in the Internet, Jeff Yang. People are abusing it. I don't think our industry is really prepared for all the, uh, the ramifications. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Stand by Joe in five seconds. This Four, is Squawk Pod. Three, two, one. One, his mic here. Our guest host, Jeff Yang, founding partner of Red Point Ventures, AT&T board member, friend of the show. Thanks Uh, for having me. You are welcome. Venture capitalist Jeff Yang is a veteran of Silicon Valley. He was funding companies in the 90s when the Internet was still a novelty, and he believed so strongly in this techie unknown that he made a contrarian move in the thick of the dot-com boom before the bust. It was such a newsy decision that CNBC covered it 20 years ago. Let's rewind to 1999. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Sellers, and this is Power Lunch. Nowhere is the Internet's growing presence more evident than on Sand Hill Road, the epicenter of Silicon Valley's venture firms. These VC shops have pumped billions and billions of dollars into Internet startups this year alone. An exclusive report in the Wall Street Journal today reports that partners at two major VC firms have decided to put all their eggs into the Internet-only basket by forming a pure-play VC shop. Here with the exclusive details is Wall Street Journal reporter Kara Swisher. Is there a danger here? Well, yeah. I mean, if the if the if the sector slips, if the IPO market continues to be weak, um, you know, they they and they're only funding internet companies. They you know they don't have other things to fall back on. That pure-play VC. That's Jeff Yang's Red Point Ventures. Although back in 1999, he and his co-founders called it Project T-Rex. The firm survived that name, the dot-com boom, the subsequent bust, and everything since. Here's Jeff Yang on Squawk Box today. What is the current state of tech right now? It's, uh, a year ago, I felt like it was unstoppable, and it was the future, and, and that you know mankind was going to benefit, and we were all going to just you know go into the future singing and, and you know and all together. Now it's so contentious, so many different issues, so many different things that on a daily basis we even argue about, you know, political, uh, privacy, right. um, Libra, all these different things happening. Well, so certainly uh, we're, under, we're in the hot seat. Uh, there, there's no question. I, I, I believe in the long-term ramifications of, of what technology can do in bringing, uh, uh, bringing pro- productivity improvements, bringing new ways of doing things, disrupting industries. 
and I think that long-term trend is definitely intact. But it's clear that uh, it's you know uh, the the profile of the technology industry, and maybe we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves, particularly as it relates to certain public policy matters and the effect on uh, on opinion and the effect on uh, disruption. It's definitely we're definitely under fire, and so I think it's very hard not to. Um, it's very hard to ignore those uh, those realities of, of what we're facing, and to under you, you kind of have to understand it, or at least have an appreciation of where it might go. And right now, there's a lot of uncertainty. What, what do you mean when you say we could have gotten ahead of ourselves? What, you mean you guys are? It's that move fast and break things sort of ethos that yeah. maybe uh, it's and and you look at you look at uh, Facebook as an example. I mean, it's uh, it's global reach is is astounding, and and what you can do. You know the good that you can do on the platform and reconnecting people uh, with 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 others and and sharing uh, opinions and reflections with like minds is a- absolutely a wonderful thing. I mean, it's it's analogous to kind of what the telephone the telephone network was, but the flip side of it is people are abusing it, and there are a lot of people with black hats that are doing things that were unintended consequences of the, the same wonderful platform, and I think. You know, I, I don't think our industry is really prepared for all the uh, the ramifications. Of it's that. interesting that you bring up the telephone industry because that was eventually broken up. You think that happens here? So, um, and specifically with regard to Facebook. Facebook, I think, is probably the target number one, right. but you can point to probably four or five other big companies. Sure. Uh, so let's talk about Facebook for a second. So I, I think the first thing to understand is that by its nature, it's a natural network effect business, a little bit like marketplaces. In other words... Uh, it's useful because everybody's on it, and because right. everybody's on it, you want to be on it, right? If 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 you others weren't on it, you wouldn't want to be on it. So unless you're Yogi Berra, <laughs> <laughs> nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Exactly, but but it's one of these things where, kind of by its nature, if it's successful, every you know, it's going to be a highly concentrated business. So, like marketplaces, I think you're you, you're likely to see businesses that have real value if a lot of people are on it. So then the question is, is it, is it too big, right? And, and, and should it be broken up? And, and one thing, just kind of conceptually, you know, my belief is that it, it provides a lot of great things, just like a, a communications network provides a lot of great things. And being able to link everybody to anybody else, and how great would it be if you picked up the phone and only a third of the people you know, were on it? It would have much less value. So you've got to be careful and think about the good that it's doing, not just the harm that it's doing, right? But, but so the, the question that I'd ask is, would you t- there have been some very controversial decisions that Mark Zuckerberg has yes. made, including around political advertising and other things, yes. um, that he has done, arguably even, he would say, or suggest it's more for philosophical reasons necessarily than even economic ones. I don't know if that's right or wrong. But do you think that he's just... I mean, would you agree, for example, with him, or would you agree with Jack Dorsey at Twitter in terms of how you think about some of these issues? Uh, personally, I mean, we're, we're, uh, we are plowing new ground uh, from a public policy perspective, and Facebook in particular is, you know, at the very forefront trying to figure out, you know, what's right. And, and I think regulators are trying to figure out, hey, what, what's, the, what's the best thing to do? And there, I think the reality is that the regulators are always going to be behind you know, the platform. And so something has to be done, right? And that's a lot of the public outcry, I think, for, for you know, the argument for breaking it up. And, and, and when you, but, but I do think there have to be more rules, rules of the road. And when you ask about the question of, do I think it'll be broken up, as I look into the subject about kind of antitrust, and I don't really know 
nearly enough, only enough to kind of be dangerous. I think it's kind of a, a little bit of a murky argument about what the consumer harm is, you know, on a free service. And so then you go to uh, restraint of trade and market power. And I think, I think it's a hard argument uh, to make, as I understand it, from a, from a legal perspective, because antitrust, uh, antitrust laws and antitrust framework wasn't really contemplated for this type of environment. I would have said the same thing about AT&T Time Warner, though. Okay, like, fair enough. You know, that's... And we may be dealing with new rules that are getting made up along the way. I understand, but yeah. we're, we're dealing with the new rules that are being made up as we go along versus traditional case law and, and right. traditional framework. Right. So then, but I think there are definitely issues as regard to privacy, with regard to data portability, and with, with regard to uh, freedom of speech. Uh, and, I, and I distinguish freedom of speech from freedom of, ex of expression, right? You know, it's kind of the, the yelling fire in a theater, you know, issue. And I think there have to be rules of the road on, on what is acceptable speech. I think there need to be rules of the road in terms of privacy, and there need to be rules of the road in terms of data portability. Right. But I think all those can be handled outside the framework of a breakup. AT&T this week is rolling out HBO Max. Uh, what, what we're looking at, what's expected, mm -hmm. uh, huge library, lots of stuff that they're cramming into it, but it's also a fairly high price point at almost $15. Um, talk about what this means for AT&T, what you think about the service and the strategy. Well, you know, I was at the announcement uh, yesterday, I guess, or the, the day before yesterday, and uh, I just thought it was an incredibly impressive, you know, announcement. A lot of people have been talking. There's a lot talking, of stuff in it. Really a lot of stuff yeah. in it. And, and, and the library of HBO is kind of unparalleled. I mean, they were the, really the first to define kind of premium, you know, original content. Uh, and then when you lay, layer on top of that the Warner Brothers uh, library, Warner Brothers Television, Warner Brothers uh, uh, Pictures, and then the original the original stuff that's coming as well as you know things from Cartoon Network or I was just blown away by the ag the actual amount of content and uh, and the breadth of content and you know it probably it may not be the most in terms of uh, actual aggregate number of hours but I think it's maybe the the broadest in terms of breadth yesterday my son was like you know this is a big day for for HBO plus he goes everything is on a debt everything but it's really expensive and I go, well, how much? And, and I knew. And it was $15. And Same I, as HBO was coming And he said, but we have to get it. I mean, <laughs> so he said. Yeah, that's great. Huh? But, we, but you already have it. Well, I know. I mean, that to me. But is, if but, we didn't, we'd have to. We would. Right, but to me, that's. Do other people say that, though, that it's 15 but we have to have it, so I'm not worried that it's not 5 I mean, it, 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 we're, we're arguing about when is it Is there any inelasticity to something that you really want? Well, that was, that was the question I was going to ask. Yeah. You look at this and say, Consumers are going to have Netflix. Is, is, to me, mm -hmm. this is a Netflix versus HBO Max kind of product as opposed to Disney Plus I put in a separate category. Mm -hmm. Apple Plus, I think, given the library or, or, or lack of library, is sort of a, a smaller add-on. Mm -hmm. um, Peacock's you know, free. Peacock's free. Um, and then there's Hulu. So there's right. sort of Hulu, Netflix, HBO Max. Right. Do you think that consumers buy one? They buy two. How do you think about that? I, I think consumers end up probably settling in a multiples. Okay. And I think it's, it's somewhere, I would guess it's around three. You know, and obviously there's, you know, the, the, the number is probably less important than the, ag aggregate, uh, the aggregate price that you're paying. But I do think that, that, that no one's going to get everything out of a single service. And uh, having, having the diversity of things to choose from and having multiples. Now, at some point, people get subscription fatigue. 
you know, just logging into different things right. and kind of managing and figuring out where to look and all that. Let, kind of let stuff. me ask you, when, when AT&T bought Time yep. Warner, part of the plan yep. was not only for HBO to continue at a $15 price point, right. but to actually create incremental, a, a new product with, at an incrementally higher price point. So right. it wasn't just going to be a volume story. It was going to be volume plus. Right. Now we're only at a volume story. How does that change the equation in terms of your whole thought process around this deal? Well, I, I also think that it's, it's at launch, right? right? And then over time, the, time, the, the question will be, you know, can, you add, can you add more value that might support you know, being able to raise prices or having, or having an even higher you know, tier of service as well as maybe a lower tier of service? Jeff Yang of Redpoint Ventures, it's been great having you here. We will see you back again soon. That's the show for today. Happy Halloween. Yeah, we haven't even mentioned it. We haven't even mentioned Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy, happy birthday, Penelope. What are you... Um, happy... Just hold on a second. Happy birthday, happy Penelope. Happy birthday, Penelope. Thank you. What are you going as? You just go in one building, right? No, we go to multiple buildings. You can go... But it's easier in New York to go just door, door to door. Yeah. You know, out where I live, it, it might take 10 minutes to walk between, you know, houses. You know, the driveway. Yeah. And then you got to... Man of the people. You got to you get, bu- get buzzed in. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.